I think it is incumbent upon those of us who are involved in designing clinical trials to think about the patient at the other end. Many of the patients who want to participate come to that center, but when they hear that they've got to go back and forth multiple times, sometimes a week, in order to participate in the trial, it just doesn't make sense. Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by CODA, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real-world data. Hello, I have the honor of being here today with Dr. Gwen Nichols, Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. It's phenomenal to welcome such an expert in this space, especially during Blood Cancer Awareness Month. As LLS's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Nichols plays a critical role in advancing cures through a unique combination of clinical, academic, and pharmaceutical experience. Some of her previous roles include things like the head of Roche Translational Clinical Research Center, Columbia University's head of hematologic malignancies program, and the elite postdoctoral work that she did at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Currently, she oversees LLS's scientific research portfolio, patient services, and policy and advocacy initiatives. And as a physician and scientific writer, you can see she has dedicated her career to advancing cures for cancers. Dr. Nichols, it's such a pleasure to have you on our CODA podcast today, especially in light of uh, Blood Cancer Awareness Month. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. And yes, this is an important month for us. So today we'll be talking about blood cancers. And I wanted to start us off with a question I'm sure a lot of folks have that the folks that are watching us are thinking, and that is what is one thing that everyone should know about blood cancers that they maybe don't know? Well, I think it can be confusing because blood cancers, actually, the thing that most people don't know is that it's actually hundreds of different types of cancer all bundled together. And I think some of it is our name gets people confused because we're the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. It sounds like, well, there are two diseases and that's it. But in fact, it's leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma, myeloproliferative diseases, myelodysplastic syndromes. As we learn more scientifically, particularly genomically, we can now subdivide these diseases into so, so many categories. In fact, I'm hoping that the therapeutics will catch up with the science because we've really, we understand individual cancers much better than we did when I was in training. And it really was acute and chronic lymphoid and myeloid, and that was it. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. And it's true. I think, you know, here at CODA, we actually do the same thing. We take each one of these diseases on their own and really expand upon each based on the characteristics of that disease. And so given what you just said, what do you feel like are some of the latest advances that maybe LLS is excited about, perhaps recent research or initiatives or, you know, that LLS is running and other advances that you would want us to know about and maybe watch for? Well, there are three areas that I think are 
are really exciting in the blood cancer space. And frankly, blood cancers lead the way in terms of new therapies and therapies that can be used in other cancers after they're discovered in blood cancer. So I think this holds for all cancer, but in blood cancer, the first area I'm excited about is an extension of what I said before, and that is that as we can understand the biology of different tumors that we used to, you know, under the microscope, they may all look exactly the same or very similar, but now we can understand the biologic drivers so much better that we are really at the precipice of being able to start subdividing our treatments so we aren't treating people one size fits all for their disease. And, you know, we've talked about precision medicine for many years, and there's real promise there, but we're not there yet. And I think, I think we're at the point where, as I said before, that I'm hoping our drug development can catch up with our understanding of biology so that we really can understand the biology of a person's tumor and say, these are the therapies and this is the sequence you should receive them. And that area is still a very important area. I love what you just said. I mean, it really resonates with me and with us here at CODA as well, because precision medicine is absolutely about getting to that person's cancer, right? So yeah, I'd love to have you expand a little bit more about that and how small groups of patients can have big outcomes if you are really targeting a particular medicine for their cancer, but it can also go personally to one person, right? To one person. And I think, you know, I'm talking about the drug development, but we also have to change our clinical development because our traditional way of doing clinical trials naturally groups people together. In other words, you have to treat you know, 100 patients to get a statistical answer. But if you're making the diseases rarer and rarer and more individualized, it doesn't quite fit in that system. So we have a lot of work we need to do. And we are certainly at the forefront of thinking about new clinical trial designs and ways that we can improve on the everybody with lymphoma gets treated with this drug, which is the way we've worked in the past. And so I think the precision medicine requires a different thinking amongst people who design clinical trials. Yeah, absolutely. I actually want to talk a little bit about clinical trials in a moment and dive a little bit more into that. But before we go there, tell us a little bit about LLS and how you support and drive research in this space. Absolutely. So I think a lot of people think of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society purely as a research organization. And that is obviously the cherry on the top of our cake. We are, you know, first and foremost, each year doing a research throughout the different types of blood cancer, both very basic research clinical research, and now even health sciences and health policy research. So our research agenda runs the gamut. And I think this is really important because if you only do basic science, 
and you get a lot of great publications, they just sit on a shelf, right? That doesn't help a single person. So we need to be involved in the clinical part and in moving those therapies and making sure people have access to them. So LLS not only does research, but has an immense array of educational and support services for patients, as well as a very active public policy arm. And any of you listening have a political bone in your body and care about the cost of medicine and the lack of access that some people have to new and exciting therapies, you can join us and be an advocate with us. And it really is as simple as having a phone. So I'm, you know, if you can listen to this podcast, you can join LLS Advocacy. So I'm making a pitch there because I really do believe that science without moving that science to the patients who need it is only doing half the job. And so LLS really is a 360 organization. And I, I feel very proud about that. <laughs> We so agree with you. Here at CODA, we pride ourselves on also making the connection between life science and provider, and then, of course, the patient themselves. That's really what it's about. And speaking of research, let's talk a little bit about clinical trials and this concept of making clinical trials part of a patient's treatment. So we all know, as you've just mentioned, there's such a need to get drugs to patients faster. What are your thoughts on how we do this through clinical trials? So I'm hoping that the general public, you know, if there are any silver linings to be had from the COVID crisis, it is that the general public now understands some of the rigors of the process of moving a new therapy from discovery to approval. And it is a complex and very safety-driven process. We need to think about efficiencies like those we learned this year from the vaccines, but also in the oncology space, we learned a huge amount about doing clinical trials when patients couldn't travel as often, when people were quarantined. We work to keep trials going. And we learned some things that we've been doing that were getting in patients' ways for participation. And I think it is incumbent upon those of us who are involved in designing clinical trials to think about the patient at the other end. Does that test really need to be done? And does it have to be done only at a big academic medical center? Are there things we can do to make trials more accessible to more people? And two things that we're doing at LLS, I'd really love to have the opportunity to tell you about. One of them is that we have a research program that we call the IMPACT program. And what it is, is saying we have some great large academic centers that see a lot of patients and do a lot of trials. But many of the patients who want to participate come to that center, but when they hear that they've got to go back and forth multiple times, sometimes a week in order to participate in the trial, it just doesn't make sense. This cannot make sense because they are rural, you know, and they have to travel uh, 200 miles to get to the big academic center, 
or it could be as you know New York City where I live it can also take two hours to get from one part of the city to the other if you live in Coney Island and you need to get to Sloan Kettering in the middle of the day that even though it's maybe 15 miles as the crow flies it's hours of travel and if you have a job if you have children if you have other responsibilities you look at that and say I just can't do that well what can we do we can train sites closer to home to do some of the clinical trial work, some of the follow-up, and the specialized testing can be done at the big academic centers. We need to partner with our community oncologists in order to make this more feasible for patients. And our impact program is supporting that kind of work. So that's one area I think we really need to make a difference. The second is on our advocacy. We are advocating in Washington to change the rules and regulations. We want trials to be safe. We're not telling the FDA to change that. What we're saying is a blood count done in a laboratory in Coney Island is just as good as a blood count done at a laboratory in Manhattan. And so can we simplify some of the steps that right now you have to certify every lab that participates in a clinical trial, even though a CBC done, it's done on the same machine. Let's try and put away those barriers and allow pharma companies to help support travel, hotels, the other things that people need to make it feasible to participate. That is so, so true. I think as part of my background, I was involved in and actually the head of Johnson and Johnson's feasibility and advanced analytics team, where that's exactly what we saw. These real life problems are things that people truly cannot get past to maybe join a clinical trial or be a part of exploratory medicine development. And so I really appreciate how operationally focused these endeavors are and how really they go to the patient's bottom. And let's talk a little bit about clinical trials in terms of the evidence and the data. So a huge part of a clinical trial when we're talking about submitting to a health authority is the data. It needs to be presented well. It needs to be conglomerated well for an approval. So let's talk about how real-world patient data impacts that as well. One of the first questions I have for you is, what is the role that you feel the patient's data may be playing in or potentially should play in advancing research and drug discovery? Well, I think there are a couple of different ways that this can play an important role. The most obvious is that clinical trials oftentimes are limited in terms of who participates right now. And we know that. We're hoping to change that. But in the meanwhile, drug developers, and I know because I've been one, their mind is set to say, I need to move this drug so that it's available to patients. The best way to do that is to choose patients who are going to be tolerate the drug, are, you know, will prove the point that the drug works. The problem is that's not what the average patient is like. The entry criteria, the inclusion exclusion criteria can be very significant. 
And that's, I get it. I've done it. I know why it has to be. But real world data can give us rapidly some understanding of what happens in patients that aren't perfect, <laughs> that don't fit the mold of clinical trial participant. And so I think that's one of the most important is to find out how this drug acts in patients who might have some kidney problems or who might have hypertension or who might be different ethnic backgrounds. And I say that only because we find out some really surprising things about drug metabolism and drug distribution in the body that vary based on your race and ethnicity. And because some of these enzymes and so forth are inherited. And so it is really important that we don't base our understanding of a drug just on the small number of patients that got it moved forward in development, but rather what it really can and can't do in the real world. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's so poignant. And, and I think part of that is, as we talk about drug development, even prior to clinical trials, external control arms, external comparator arms and things of that sort, which is one area where CODA actually excels. I think that's a really important point, and I'd love to expand on that because I'm not sure everyone understands why that could be so, so important. And my best example is in pediatrics, which thankfully pediatric blood cancers are rarer than adult blood cancers. But to do a clinical trial in pediatrics if you have to do a controlled trial, you are going to be giving children drugs that you know aren't good enough or you wouldn't be doing the trial in the first place. So is that what we want for our kids? No, of course not. And as a parent, I would not want my child to be on a control arm. So how do we do this? Well, we need to use data that we already have that's all over the place and not at the pharmaceutical company that's studying this to understand so that we can do match the trial patients to patients that have already been treated in with standard of care so that we don't have to do a 200 patient trial in a disease where there are only a few hundred patients a year that have the disease. And so the ability to use that data and create a synthetic control means that we are not treating, and in my instance, with our pediatric effort, not treating children with drugs that we are trying to improve on. That hits very close to home to many of us who are parents. And I have to say, I also take that even a step further to Obviously, in children, it's very poignant, and my heart goes out to anyone who has, you know, had to, to enroll their child on a clinical trial for that reason. But it goes to everything else, right? Our grandparents, our parents, ourselves, right? And I completely agree with you so, so, so well. 
Now let's dive into a little bit of a different topic on the data side, because you might, you jogged my memory on something that we talked about on a previous conversation, and that is some of the registries that LLS runs. Can you tell us a little bit about the differences between registries and real world data from electronic medical records? In your opinion, how are they the same? How are they different? How can, can be, they be utilized in different ways? Well, thank you for bringing this up because we are incredibly proud about our registry at LLS. And I will tell you a little bit about it and then talk about the role that electronic health records can play in, and I hope will play in the future. And this is why, you know, what CODA is doing is something that rings true to me because it is a way for us to use data that is being collected in the most efficient fashion. I want to take a step back. We recognized late in 2020 when all the hematology oncology folks got together for our annual meeting and got together virtually. We heard my chief scientific officer, Dr. Lee Greenberger, and I heard all of the presentations about how poorly blood cancer patients did if they got infected with COVID. And the, you know, some of the reports said they had three times the chance of dying than an age-matched control patient. And this was repeated across all the diseases that LLS supports. He and I then said, we need to find out who's looking at whether vaccinations will be effective for these patients. And so we, you know, LLS is able to convene investigators around the world. And so we got together the experts. We talked to folks at the NCI. We talked to folks in the UK. And we sat down and said, who's testing to see if this works? And much to our dismay, the NCI had a planned study with 20 or so patients with Moderna and, you know, a few of the institutions were looking at their own patients. There was no plan to look at how well vaccinations worked in this very high risk immunosuppressed population. And this was in December uh, of 2020 and the vaccines were about to come out. And we recognized that not a single cancer patient was included, or they might have snuck on, but it was an exclusion criteria. This comes back to our earlier conversation. No cancer patients were included on the trials of the vaccine. So we did not know whether it was safe and whether it would work. LLS also polled several thousand of our constituents and asked them if they were planning to take the vaccine. And there was a high degree of concern and hesitancy because they were afraid of the safety issues related to the vaccine. And so what we decided was to build, well, we already had a patient registry that we had beta tested, but we built a COVID specific clinical study. Now a registry is generally, if it's done right, patients do sign informed consent to give their own patient reported outcome information and to participate in trials as they see fit. So we give them the information and they say, yes, I want to participate in that. So we said, if you are getting vaccinated, 
and because blood cancers skew towards older patients, many of our patients were going to get vaccinated in the first swath of 65 and above. So we said, please give us your information, fill out the survey about the safety and take a test after your second vaccination to see how well it worked. Do you produce antibodies after you get vaccinated? So we thought we'd get about a thousand patients on this over the six to nine month period. We had 3,500 patients in the first two months. So we were able, having opened this in February, by the June timeframe to report not only that it, the safety was identical to that of all the rest of us, sore arms, fever, some people felt crummy for a day or two, but no unusual safety signals in the blood cancer patients. And then we recently have been able to publish that unfortunately, although 75% of folks with blood cancer make antibodies, 25% are what we call seronegative. So they make no antibody after full vaccination. And that means they're likely to still be at risk for COVID infection. We are collecting electronic health records. And so the difference between a registry and electronic health records is that you are relying on the patient to remember their side effects, what day they had their vaccine, what their disease type is. Now, blood cancer patients, and, and certainly the patients that have participated here, are pretty savvy and they really gave us good, solid quality information. But having the confirmation of their treatments and disease and so forth to really look at the, the specifics of how long have they been on this therapy or off that therapy, what other medical problems do they have? These are the kind of things that researchers can use the electronic health record to really dive into to understand more who are the patients that don't respond. And that helps us understand what we might be able to do to help them. Wow, just wow. And some of the registries that you have put together in such a short period of time, amazing work. One thing I'd love to get your perspective on as well, because you are truly an expert in hematologic malignancies across the whole spectrum, clearly. I'd love to get your perspective on how you think blood cancer medicine will change in say, I don't know, the next 10 years. And what are the predictions of treatments and patient experience prognosis and outcomes that you might see in the future in hopes that perhaps some of the things we've discussed might go into effect and, you know, clinical trials might change for the better. So I'd love to get your perspective on that. Well, one area that we didn't talk about that I think is going to change and will make a difference is our understanding of the immune system and utilizing the immune system to help enhance the response we have targeted therapies to all of our therapies. And this is across the board in cancer, but given that CAR T cell therapy initiated in the blood cancer space, and I'm proud to say was supported by LLS for many, 
20 years before it became available for patients, it tells us that we can utilize the immune system better than we are to help kill blood cancer cells. And so I think this will be, over the next decade, a really interesting addition to our therapeutic armamentarium. The other thing that I think will really make a difference for patients is that for the first time ever, you know, blood cancers, we've always had a problem because, you know, some of the more common cancers, prostate cancer, breast cancer, you can do early detection. And there is nothing that we know right now, up until recently, that told us very much about early detection for blood cancers. We are starting to make some real progress in early detection in myeloma to understanding which patients who have abnormal proteins are actually going to become myeloma and can we act on it before it is a full-blown cancer. We also can look at clonal hematopoiesis in older normal people and start to learn which of those patients might develop leukemia in the future. And the idea there is maybe we're at the precipice of having some way to do early detection. It's, an, you know, our next step is to then say, what do we do to prevent that from becoming full-blown leukemia? And so I think that prevention is on the horizon. It's very early, but there's some hope. And I, you know, all of my career, I've been saying, no, there's no way to prevent these blood cancers. I'm hopeful that over the next years, that'll become a reality. We're already seeing amazing improvements for patients in terms of survival with all, you know, we have, blood cancers are 10% of the overall cancer population but 40% of the new therapeutics have been in the blood cancer space. So we have lots of new and exciting therapies that are making big differences in patients' lives, both in terms of how difficult the therapies are to take, they're much uh, less toxic, but also really giving people much longer lifespans. Incredible. That sounds like a really promising future for patients with these types of diseases. Now, before we wrap it up, this has been incredible to just sit here with you and think through all of these things. Any last thoughts that you might have or anything that you would want to say to our listeners before we wrap up? Yes. And this is a shameless pitch for LLS, but I think your listeners are likely to know people that have blood cancer you know, to be patients with blood cancer or to be caring for people with blood cancer. LLS has unbelievable free services, financial assistance, educational programs. We can arrange for you as a patient or you as a caregiver to talk to someone else who has the disease you have you can learn things from these patients. We have other kinds of support group. We have nutritional support. All of this is available on our website or by calling our information specialists at our 800 number. And I would hope that people would refer 
to LLS. That's what we're here for, to be sure that we can provide that kind of help to as many patients as possible. Such an incredible resource. Very much appreciated. And here at CODA, we actually make sense of the electronic medical records of blood cancer patients, but cancer patients across the board for providers as well as life science teams. And there you have it. So you heard it here first on the CODA podcast from the distinguished Dr. Nichols. Thank you so very much for spending the time with me today. It's been truly an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much, Maruna. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real world data, please visit us at CODAHealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk.